Hebrews 12.25 See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised yet once more, and I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Amen, Freddie. For our God is a consuming fire. Lord, please, please, Lord, take the message that you have here, that we all have here before us printed with ink on paper, and may these very symbols and figures come alive and be the means by which our souls are invigorated this evening, Lord. We want to hear from you. We want to worship you. We want you to receive the praise of our minds as well as our voice and our passion. And so, Lord, as we hear from your word, we ask that you would do that work that you promised to do in us and make us more like you. And like we so often pray here, Lord, may we walk out of these doors knowing you better and loving you more than we did when we came in. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace, your mercy, your love, your death for us. We praise you. And we ask these things in your sacred name. Amen. Well, we're coming to the end of the book. Lord willing, of course. But as we come to the end of the book... He doesn't let up, does he? (laughs) This isn't one of those things where he gets to chapter 11 and gets through that big old hall of faith and he tells the stories and everybody's also fond of the stories about the Moses and the Abraham and all warms your heart, right? Kind of thing. No, he steps on the gas rather than pumping the brakes and slowing the thing down. And when we get into chapter 12, right, it hits us with a full force because he tells us that we now have the opportunity to run the race that's set before us. And then he gives us these warnings, first about discipline and then about remembering which covenant you actually belong in, right? Remember, Jewish audience, right? Hebrews is written to a group of struggling Jewish Christians. Now you might ask yourself this question, self, why does every single week Pat go back to that? 
Because you need to remember that. Because that's the point of the book. And if you're going to get the point of the book for you, not a Jew, you need to understand what the point was for the Jews, the Jewish Christians who heard it for the very first time. And if you understand the weight of that argument for them, it will be twice as compelling for you who are Gentiles, who were not under that old covenant or don't have any um, flesh in that. That's not the right euphemism. (laughs) A dog in that fight. Let's use that one. That's a safer one. Jewish Christians in Rome, they've been persecuted. We've seen chapter 10 that they have been made fun of. They've been ridiculed. Some of them have been beaten for their faith. Some of them have been imprisoned. And then some of those who weren't in prison went to go visit those in prison. And while they were gone, had their stuff plundered and their property vandalized. And it was a lot for these people who had become Christians and had left Judaism. They left a lot behind. Family, friends, society, a culture, a mindset, a worldview. To adopt this new one that had come about as a result of Jesus Christ preaching, living, dying, and raising from the dead as the Jewish Messiah. So they had left a lot and invested a lot into this new thing. And they were beginning to think, maybe we made a bad investment. Maybe we made a bad decision. Maybe we were hasty and we jumped ship too quick. This is so hard. And so we know the story. They were going back to Judaism and abandoning faith in Christ. And so the whole point of the book of Hebrews is, what are you doing? You can't do that. Why would you go back to what's inferior and leave what is superior? You're leaving the very substance that everything that was before you was pointing forward to. You're abandoning the reality to go back and dink around in the shadows. What are you doing? There is no, no No hope for you if you take this Jesus Christ. I'm not pointing at anything over here on the wall. You take Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who died and shed his blood, who lived in your place. You are dead in Adam. You're dead in your sins. You're by nature a child of wrath. Yet Christ came and secured your redemption. And you have placed your faith in Christ. And now you're going to turn your back on that? And go back to bulls and goats and rituals and what? And so we've seen this contrast of the old, the new, over and over and over again. And he doesn't let up here. Verse 25, see that you, okay? Who's the you? The Hebrew congregation, right? This Jewish Christian church in Rome. 
Well, does that only apply to them? Of course not. Everything that he has said in this book and he's going to say in this book applies to you just as well as it did to them because this is about faith in Christ. I could say this. We could say, see that you don't refuse him who is speaking, Jesus Christ from heaven, so that you don't turn your back and go off into other things, no matter what they are, whether it's other religions or altruistic fraternities or to civic government or to entrepreneurship or whatever it might be. People, 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 people worship all kinds of things. And people will find themselves investing their lives in all manner of things. Some we might look at and say that's legitimately outwardly good. But the reality is, is if it is not Christ and he is not the substance, the warp and woof of your life, then whatever else you're in and functioning in is, well, like you said this morning, filthy rags. See that you don't refuse him who is speaking. What's the implication? Some of them were refusing to hear him who is speaking, right? It's not difficult to, to dot those, connect those dots. But then what he does is what he's been doing the whole time. He contrasts Israel with the church. The old versus the new. Now we, like Joel and I were talking about earlier, we don't unhitch the old from the new, right? That's not something we unhitched from and left behind. The old informs and points us to the new. And if we want the full substance of the new, we need the old. But we don't live in the old. We don't dwell in the old. Our mindset is not the old way, but rather the new way. So Israel and the church, the old and the new, old covenant, new covenant, right? The two probably most important phrases in this book, besides Jesus. (laughs) Old covenant, new covenant, or old covenant, new covenant. Yeah, of course the new covenant is Jesus, but... See that you, New Covenant, church, Christian, professing believer, don't refuse him who is speaking. For if they, Old Covenant, did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? Now, of course, he's referring to that episode in Numbers, and you're probably read it in your devotions this week, right? Numbers 14, right? You were all there, right? All right, you weren't. Let's go look at it real quick. <laughs> I wasn't either. I did read it for the sermon, but I wasn't there in my devotions. Numbers 14. Oh, this new Bible's not turning well, but oh, it smells so good. <laughs> Numbers 14. All right. Let's begin in verse 26. The Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel which they grumble against me. Say to them, 
as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and of all your number listed in the census, from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones who you said, oh, they're going to become a prey, I will bring them in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness Forty years and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. Now we'll stop there. It goes on a little bit. But boy, that's no joke. Right? God's, God is serious. You see, they were grumbling and they were complaining against the Lord, Right? And what they were saying, in essence, is God Almighty, who rescued them out of the land of Egypt via all of these miraculous goings on, right? The water and the blood, the gnats and the frogs and the cricket. Was there no crickets? What am I talking about? The tumors and the whatnot, and then the darkness, and then ultimately the Passover, right? And then he leads them all out through the Red Sea as it parts and they walk across on dry land and he drowns the armies of Pharaoh. And you would think, now we would think, how thick do you have to be (laughs) to have gone through all that and experienced all that and yet at the end of that go, oh, God brought us out here to die. But you know what? Listen, listen, beloved. You and me, we are people of like passions. I'm prone to look back and say, as I turn my nose up at them Old Testament folk, I wouldn't have said that if I were there. But the truth of the matter is, is I am no better than they are apart from the grace of God that he has me here and now rather than back and then. Truth of the matter is, is apart from God's grace, we are all dead in the wilderness. We are all dead bones. We all have no hope. And so the argument you see, let's get back into the book of Hebrews here, lest this sermon gets away from me. See that you don't refuse him who is speaking. God is speaking to the congregation through the preacher, through the writer of Hebrews. Whoever he was, maybe she, I don't know, but whoever he was, is speaking. God is speaking. Now, listen. I do not, this is important, because we do believe that when the word is rightly preached, when this book is opened up and it is rightly preached to God's people. It is God speaking to you. It is not me on my own 
up here and speaking because I am superior or I have something here. I I don't have a degree, so you know it isn't that. (laughs) It's purely because God has called me and it's purely because he has seen fit to use the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And he uses a blunt instrument like me in order to get his message out because he, like I said the other night, I think it was with Fred and Falcon, that he can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. And God is perfectly capable of speaking to you through a broken preacher like me. And the writer of Hebrews. And the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle John. And James, the brother of Jesus. And all of the people who have preached God's word throughout the millennia. We all believe that God is speaking to his congregation, to his people. And he's using chumps to do it. And so what he's saying here is, see that you don't refuse him who is speaking. He's not referring to himself. Do you see that? He's not saying, hey, you better make sure you listen to me, buddy. Right? He's saying, you better make sure that you don't refuse God as he's speaking. Because as the writer of Hebrews believes, as I believe, I am preaching the word of God to you and that God's word will be effectual. You get that? The Holy Spirit will come into your life and take the word that is preached and apply it to you and change you and mold you and shape you. And if you are not under the good and right preaching of the word of God, then what is the means God is going to use to mold and shape you? That's an important question to ask yourself because this is the means God said he was going to use. And if you're going to come up with something else, you probably ought to find out where God said he was going to use that. So see that you don't refuse him who is speaking because they refused when God warned on earth. And remember, God used Aaron and Moses to go and tell the congregation this. And they refused him. You know, God was so gracious to them and he's so gracious to us. Beloved, don't refuse him when he speaks to you. He spe- you, know, you, you know, come on. You know when God is speaking to you. You know that tug of conviction. You know that cut of need when there is something to be rooted out of your life. You know that call and plead to repent and confess your sin. And God is so gracious and generous to give that to us. (laughs) Beloved, they didn't escape because... They did not believe. They did not trust God. Even though God performed all of these miracles. People think still today you need all kinds of miracles and stuff, right? There's whole churches with the hooky spookies and the this and that going on. And you can go there and they're Holy Ghost dancing and Holy Ghost rolling and Holy this and Holy that. And you know what? At the end of the day, really, really, are you trusting and placing your faith in the word of God? Or are you chasing down other things? Because they refused him who warned on earth. At that time, God did some crazy miracles and yet they still rejected God's voice. God doesn't need miracles in order to get you to follow him. In fact, (laughs) that just occurred to me. You remember there in Luke 
when Zacchaeus and, and the, the, the rich man, they both die. One goes to Abraham's bosom, one goes to hell. And the rich man's like, oh, hey, Abraham, have Lazarus come dip his finger in the water and touch my tongue because I'm parched. All right. That's my paraphrase, right? But that's what happened. And Abraham says, no can do. We're separated by this great, big, vast gulf. He's like, oh, well, then have him go back to my brothers because they'll listen to him. And Abraham's words are punchy and so important. Even right here, they have the word of God, Moses. They have the word of Moses. And if they don't listen to that, they're not going to believe even if someone raises from the dead. Even if someone raises from the dead. Do you got those heaven is for real kind of books with the people who came back from from heaven or hell or whatever? Throw them out. Amen. That's right. Thump them. (laughs) Because this is what we need. The one who came back from the dead and told us what's what is right here in this book and it's Jesus. Now, Rejecting God's word is a rejection of God himself. And really, that's what was taking place, right? When Moses and Aaron would come out and say something, and they'd go, ah, Moses, you're this, or you're that, or we hate you, or you brought us out here, this. They were saying it to Moses' face, but in reality, they were rejecting God, not Moses and Aaron. At that time, he shook the earth, but now, okay, That's always good to get to. Now that other stuff can get real heavy real quick. And it's important and we need to hear that word. But now is a good phrase. God has done something wonderful and amazing. Once more, he says, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Now that phrase right there sounds very heavy. And it comes from one of the minor prophets, Haggai. Okay, it comes from chapter 2. There's only two, two chapters in that little guy. And if you want to read it later on for extra credit, go ahead. It's right after Zephaniah, right before Zechariah. Okay, so you can go hunt that down. <laughs> but he says this, once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Now, that passage was in reference to the new rebuilt temple, right? You know, they were, the Jews were taken into exile because of their rebellion against God. So not only did they rebel for Moses, but they rebelled later on against God, and God had to take them out of the land that he had promised them. And the Haggai's writing to people who were coming back into the land, the promise of the return, and it's a message about the rebuilt temple, But the Jews knew there was something more going on to that text than just a building. And they believed that was a messianic text. And I think it was too. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. There's this passage in Ephesians. Turn to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. Verse 
Verse 17. And he came and he preached peace to you who were afar off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. In fact, Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Here this prophecy in Haggai chapter 2 is speaking about the rebuilt temple. And the word is that there's going to come a time where all the things will shake, heaven and earth as well, including this rebuilt temple. And the reason that the Jews looked forward to a messianic fulfillment is because they believed that the Messiah would come and establish a temple that would never be shaken, never be removed, never be torn down. And you see, they were thinking too small. They had a myopic view of this prophecy because this prophecy is so much bigger than a building in a remote corner of the land. Did you read what we said here? Did you read with me here? You are fellow citizens, members of the household of God. You are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a what? Come on, guys, what? Temple, say it. Temple. And in him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The old covenant was a covenant that said, Obey me and you will live. Do this and you will live. Obedience is what is required. The new covenant says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And I will dwell with you. Here we see in Ephesians chapter 2, this new covenant language being used of us, the household of God. You see, Haggai looking forward to something was looking forward to something greater than just simply a physical building. He was looking forward to the true temple of God, which is the people of God, the church of God. All of his believers gathered together that have been made into his dwelling place. The new covenant is, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will dwell with you because I fulfilled this. Christ came and he did what we couldn't do. He lived under that old covenant perfectly. Remember so many, he said, which one of you accuses me of sin? Remember Matthew chapter 22 1920, that whole section right in there before 23 is the Jews coming and questioning him. 
trying to trap him, trying to trick him there on the temple just before the crucifixion, that holy passion week. And in every single one of those tests that they bring before him, he stands firm. He succeeds. He answers their question and is found blameless. Even Pilate himself said, I find no fault in him and washed his hands of that event. Nobody found fault in him. Why? Because he fulfilled the old covenant. He did what we couldn't do so that once he brought in the new covenant and applied salvation to his people via the regeneration of the Holy Spirit and they were brought in, God now says to those people, I am your God and you are mine. And I will make of you a dwelling place and I will live with you forever. Hebrew believer. Listen to the person who's preaching Hebrew, the Hebrew writer, because God is speaking to you through him. And if they didn't escape what they heard, how are you going to escape if you abandon the very, what's the right word, architect of the new temple? You're going to go back to this old temple, this old ways that God himself said he's going to shake, he's going to remove all these things. You're going to go back to what he said he's going to tear down and leave behind what he said is going to stand forever? It doesn't make sense. Why would you turn your back on the fulfillment of everything you were looking forward to to go back to buildings and rituals? Yet once more, verse 27 indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, the things that have been made. And I think he's specifically here referring to the things that have been made in reference to the Old Covenant. Right? The temple, the altar, the laver, all of the priestly ritual kind of stuff. All that is going to be shaken and destroyed. Now, it hasn't yet, right? We've already seen in the book of Hebrews, the temple seems like it's still standing at the time of writing this book. But he's saying that is going to be destroyed. And it was just a few short years after this. And in order, here's why it needed to be destroyed, according to verse 27, that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Look at Isaiah chapter 65. Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65, verse 17. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered nor come to mind. Be glad. Rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall it be heard in it the sound of weeping nor the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives only but a few days or an old man who doesn't fulfill out his days. The young man shall not die a hundred years old. 
The sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them and plant vineyards and eat fruit. They shall not build or and another and, and another inhabit, forgive me. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of the trees, the people will be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. The next chapter there, look down at verse 22. And it says, for as for the new heavens and new earth that I will make, they shall remain before me, says the Lord. So shall your offspring and your name remain from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath. All flesh shall come worship before me. We might go, well, that's, that's good. But there's consistency throughout all of Scripture. And at the very end in the book of Revelation, in chapter 21, it says, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. And the one who conquers will have this heritage. Listen, I will be his God and he will be my son. And then he talks about this glorious, glorious new Jerusalem that has come down from heaven. And it says, I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem. What did Isaiah chapter 65 say? Jerusalem will be our habitation. The sea will be no more. The first heaven and earth has passed away. I heard a loud voice that said, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain for the former things have passed away. Do you feel, beloved, the weight of the argument? Do you feel it? It is not about a building. It was never about a building. It is never about ritual. It is about Jesus. And what Jesus does is he takes his people and as he saves them, he forms his church, which is his temple. You see, he dwells in his temple because he dwells within us. He dwells in our midst. And prophecies from the Old Testament all the way into the New, when we see these temple language, we see this new heaven, new earth, we see this new Jerusalem language, it's not about a city. It's not about a big old cube floating down out of the sky and landing on earth. It's about you. It's about her too. (laughs) It's about you and it's about me. It's all about us as the church. Therefore, verse 28, let us be grateful. Does that language bring you joy? Because we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken, you see. If your faith rests in anything other than Jesus Christ, and his promises to us, then it can be shaken. It can be thwarted. It can be overthrown. It can be undone. 
But Christ's work never can. It never will be. And so he's saying, we should be grateful. Yes, you are suffering, Hebrew Christians. Yes, you are going through it. But what do you have to go back to? You have the greater right before you. And yes, you might endure for a small time this period of pain, this period of suffering. But afterwards comes the glorious dwelling place of God where you are with him forever. Where you see him face to face. Where you worship before his throne. You have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. America someday will be shaken. Just as every other nation on the earth has been shaken and will be shaken as well. Our hope does not rest in Washington, D.C. Despite what some Christians might have you think. Our hope does not rest in Washington, D.C. It does not rest in the United Nations building in New York. It does not rest in Brussels. It does not rest in Jerusalem. It rests in Jesus Christ. Our kingdom, our citizenship is in heaven, beloved. You can take my possessions, my things, and I would hate it, but what everything else that I have and my family that I love so dearly, but you can't take my Jesus. You can't take my inheritance. My kingdom cannot be shaken. Jesus has me. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. And I belong to him. And I am part of this kingdom that can never be shaken. I am part of this dwelling place that will never be undone. And so therefore, how should I respond to God? When he has seen me a rebel, violent, hateful sinner of God, and for some reason he has chosen to take me out of the miry clay and set my feet upon the rock of Jesus Christ, my Lord and my Savior, and cleansed me from all my sin and all of my unrighteousness, dressed me in his robes of glory, and shown me off to all the world and say, this is the Savior that I am. I am grateful. And I offer to God acceptable worship. I come to him with that attitude. I come to him with that heart. I come to him and I say, Lord, I don't know what you saw in me. In fact, you didn't see anything in me except something that would bring you glory and honor and praise. And I come to the Lord with reverence and with awe. I don't come in a cavalier way. Hey, Poppy Jesus, that kind of thing. I come with reverence and awe because God is so vast and so amazing, yet he has condescended and he has come down and given me new life and therefore I do have a vibrant and amazing relationship with him. But that in no way gives me permission for some kind of ridiculous informality that so many come to worship in. I come with awe. That both means fear and joy. That means respect and passion. 
That means when I come to the Lord, I am overjoyed all the while I am acknowledging I am only here but by your grace. And that in turn makes me all the more grateful, which in turn reminds me of my sinful self, which in turn reminds me of my gratitude towards God. Do you see what it does? Do you see the reason why reverence and awe are so important in worship? Because one motivates the other and motivates the other and motivates the other. And it is a perpetual worship machine. For our God is a consuming fire. Our God is not, as C.S. Lewis had said, tame. He has created the universe and it is all his and he can do whatever he wants with it, whenever he wants with it. He owes nothing that exists, anything. He is not obligated to you, to me, to anyone, anywhere, anytime, in any way, shape, or form. He is God, and you are his creation. You are his creature. But that consuming fire of a God has chosen to use his fire not as an instrument of wrath for me, And for you who are his. But has chosen to use this fire to refine us. To turn us into his image. To conform us into his likeness. To make us become like him. So you see the very God who is a consuming fire. That does burn others in wrath and judgment. Who are unrepentant, rebellious hateful sinners against the Lord, that very same fire in us refines us and shapes us and makes us like Jesus. So much so that in 1 John it says, what kind of love is this that we should be called the children of God? Beloved, don't refuse him who is speaking. They didn't escape when they refused him when he warned them on earth. Well, How much less will we escape? Instead, beloved, with joy, with gratitude, sing praise as we're about to sing. Partake in communion with joy and love, remembering the work that Christ did on our behalf so that we might be saved, we might be called into his kingdom, we might be recipients of the new covenant, and most importantly right here, we might be his new temple where he dwells for now and forever. Lord, we thank you for a text like this that honestly it takes us out of our comfort zone. Lord, there's so many passages that we're familiar with that we, we, we love to go to and they're right and good and so helpful and useful. But then we come to a passages like this that really makes us think and wrestle with our faith and look back at these old things and look forward to the new. And all of that, Lord, should invigorate and inspire our worship and praise of you, God Almighty. So, Lord, we ask that you would take the fruit of our lips, the passion of our heart, the joy of our soul right now and receive it as acceptable worship. As we come to your table here, Lord, we pray that as we sing, you would prepare our hearts to meet with you.